Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. This is the second week in a row where there's a new face up here. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brandon Sansom. Uh, my wife Tiffany and I, we moved to Columbia just a little over a year ago in September of 2020. Uh, and we started coming to Redemption Hill right about that same time. Uh, earlier this spring, we joined and have been members since. Uh, we have two little children, Sawyer, who is four, and Ainsley, who is one. Tiffany and I both serve downstairs with the kids' ministry, so you'll likely see us downstairs a little bit. Tiffany's with the nursery, uh, and I work with the preschool kids. Uh, Unless DJ has another surprise up his sleeve, I think I will probably be the last new face you see up here for at least this year. Um, And I don't know about you guys, but there's been six different members here at Restoration, or Redemption Hill, sorry. (laughs) Old Church in Buffalo was Restoration. I told myself I wasn't going to do that, and there it was. Um, (laughs) So there have been six different members here at Redemption Hill that has spoken from the pulpit um, this year. And I have been really encouraged over the past few months to see how God has been working through the lives of these men um, who have been really faithful in just delivering God's word to this congregation um, and leading this congregation very well. I'm also really excited uh, to see what God is going to continue to do through those voices as he continues to equip his body. Moreover, I'm thankful for this this opportunity to give TJ a bit of a break um, as he has hopefully been able to spend some extra time as him and Allie have welcomed baby Asher into their family. So last week, Harrison opened up our Advent series with peace, declaring that even in the midst of the busyness of this holiday season and the brokenness of this world, we can find our true peace through Jesus. Now similarly today, we're going to look at how we can have hope in a world that is so broken and during a time in which hopelessness seems to be all around us. Advent is a time where we get to intentionally look forward to the true reason why we celebrate Christmas. Now, I say intentionally here um, because it's super easy to look forward to Christmas for good, but often distracting distracting reasons. Moreover, it's easy to place our hope in worldly endeavors, time with our family, giving of gifts, looking ahead to a new year, a break from work, a break from school. These can all be good things, good things that we should anticipate, good things that we should actually celebrate. But placed in the wrong context, they can result in distracted and distorted views of the true reason why we celebrate Christmas. All too often we find ourselves in the midst of a frantic season, trying to navigate the busyness of this season, and and oftentimes we set up ourselves for failure by setting unrealistic expectations. I really like how Harrison put it last week. That is, it's easy for our hearts to become lulled to sleep by the bombardment of our broken world, consumeristic agendas, and family traditions. Right there, we see three main areas that can make a season in these holidays really difficult. A broken world affects us all. Well, we are all marred by the effect of sin. And oftentimes, the holiday season, um, we see that even more. Some people struggle with remembering the loss of a loved one. Maybe there's an economic hardship during the holiday season, or there's um, difficulty with family. It's, it's times like this where we oftentimes see how the brokenness creeps in and begin to really affect us and take away the joy that we should have in this season. A consumeristic agenda, I don't think I really need to say much there. Um, materialism and consumerism is at its peak um, between these few weeks between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas where you have Black Friday, 
you have Cyber Monday, you're trying to get the perfect gift for your loved ones, uh, the kids are setting their Christmas wish and, wish and oftentimes setting themselves up for failure as they're asking for too many things or unrealistic gifts. Um, and then even family traditions. You know, family traditions can be good. They can be celebrated with pure intentions. But even these can result and lead to stressful times or anxious times. Um, you're probably trying to please everyone. Uh, you're probably trying to make sure you cook the perfect dinner. You don't overbake the turkey. And, and good luck to whoever's in charge of making the gravy. Um, what Advent does is it allows us to pause. It allows us to reposition our hearts on the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. Uh, today, so we are in the second week of Advent, uh, and we're going to be looking at hope. Now, hope is defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. So I'm sure many of us have sat through a lot of different Advent series or sermons and, and have heard a sermon on hope a few times. It's very easy to stand up here and ask the question of, where is our hope this season? What is our hope found in? And these are good questions. I think they're questions that we should actually really wrestle through and that we should take time um, to ponder for ourselves. But I also think we can take that question a step further. How do we feel when that desire or expectation has been met or has been unmet? What happens when that hope has been fulfilled? I think the better question that we can ask ourselves this year is, what is the fulfillment of our hope? So today I want us to ponder that question as we examine today's text. We're going to be in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, 19 to 23. I'm going to take a moment, pray, um, and then we'll go ahead and read God's word. So if you would bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, I just I thank you for this morning, Lord. I thank you for um, the word that you've given us. I thank you for the hope that you have given us, Lord. Uh, this morning, I just ask that you um, would be present, that your spirit would be here, Lord, that you would just soften our hearts to the truth that you have given us. I pray that you would soften our hearts to the promises that you have provided, Lord. Um, I just pray that your spirit would speak through me this morning, that it would be your word that is heard, not mine, Lord. I just pray uh, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so Hebrews 10, 19 to 23, the passage should be up here on the screens. Feel free to follow along as I read. Uh, in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." So our passage today picks up on the heels of the author of Hebrews walking through the superiority of Christ's sacrifice compared to the Levitical system. Now, if I had time this morning, I would say let's turn back to Leviticus 1 and dig through, through some old Levitical law, but I will not do that to you guys this morning. Um, <laughs> what I will do, though, is provide just a brief overview and historical context for what is going on at this time and why um, this passage was, was written to these Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews was most likely written somewhere between 67 and 69 AD uh, during a time where the Levitical priesthood um, and sacrificial system were still in operation. Mind you, this was after the crucifixion of Christ. So Christ had already came and established the new covenant. Uh, the main theme that we see throughout the book of Hebrews is this contrast between the imperfect and the incomplete provisions of the old covenant 
compared to the perfect and complete new covenant established by the high priest, Jesus Christ. At this point in history, the generation of Hebrews that would have received this epistle, epistle had either grown up and been accustomed to practicing these Levitical system of sacrifices, and in, in fact, many of them were actually still doing so. That's why we see this call in Hebrews for them to move beyond the old covenant way and, and find their hope and their rest in the new covenant that Christ had provided. Specifically related to the atoning for sins, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Hebrews would rely on a high priest uh, to perform a ritual sacrifice needed to atone for the sins of of the people. The blood of a bull, which was offered on behalf of the priest in his household, and then the blood of a goat, which was offered on behalf of the people, um, was sacrificed and then sprinkled with inside the temple to cover the sins for that past year. This old covenant practice of atoning for sins, it was never meant to provide a complete and absolute forgiveness of sin. Instead, it pointed to the seriousness of sin, and that even a temporary atonement for that sin came at the cost of the death and blood of an animal. Indeed, Hebrews 10.4 says that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Rather, the yearly repetition of the Day of Atonement was meant to be a constant reminder of the deficiency of such sacrifices. Moreover, God had designed this system as a means for preparing and pointing to the coming Messiah that would provide full and complete forgiveness of sin. This means that all that blood, all the sacrificing, all the death that was in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was meant to show us that we we have a need for a greater sacrifice. In the text leading up to our passage today, Hebrews 10, 1 to 18, really outlines the supremacy of Christ and how Christ's death on the cross provided the perfect and ultimate atonement for sin. We pick up in verse 19 where we see the author continuing to connect the supremacy of the atoning sacrifice of Christ to our freedom and hope that we have as Christians today. You see, prior to Christ dying on the cross, we were unable to enter the holy places and actually be in the presence of God. This was a special ritual reserved to those in the priesthood. In the temple, the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, it it symbolized the presence of God. This was located in a very special portion of the temple called the Holy of Holies. Now this holy place was blocked off with a large curtain or a large veil. It was only entered once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Ordinary people like you and I, we had to rely on that priest as a mediator to God on our behalf. The fulfillment of Christ's work on the cross, however, changed that forever. We are now able to be in the presence of God through his Holy Spirit. In verse 19, the phrase, since we have confidence, this is stated as a fact. Knowing what Christ accomplished on the cross, there is no reason all believers should not approach God with confidence. We also see here that this word confidence, it's the same Greek word that is used for boldness. Because of the high priestly ministry of Christ and his finished sacrifice, we can now boldly enter into the presence of God. We no longer have to rely on that priest to mediate on our behalf. We now have the freedom to boldly approach God, um, and we don't have to hesitate, we don't have to pause, we don't have to wait for someone to mediate for us. We can now be in the presence of God on our own accord. Uh, We are also given some further evidence in verse 19 through 21 as to the means of why we can actually approach God in boldness. Again, a lot of this points back to what was actually accomplished on the cross. The phrase that we see here, through the blood of Jesus, this sums up all that Jesus did by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. 
Again, placing this in the historical context, this phrase would have also resonated with the Hebrews that would be reading this at the time, especially those that were practicing the Levitical law still. You see, the blood that was sacrificed was meant to cover for their sins. Here, through the blood of Jesus, we now no longer need the old way of the old covenant. We have a high priest um, through the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ that is able to atone for our sins. Here in verses 21, we are also presented with more effectiveness. A new covenant has been established which gives Christians the freedom to approach God. Again, for the Hebrews that were still practicing this Levitical law, the thought of approaching God would have been unthinkable. Remember, for them, they relied on this high priest to mediate on their behalf. They weren't able to go into the Holy of Holies in that holy place. However, we see that Christ came and tore the divide between human and divine. We see this in verse 20 where it says, He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This points to the moment on the cross when Jesus yielded his spirit. The temple veil was also torn from the top to bottom. And there's some theological impact there signifying that no man would have been able to split that veil. That was an act of God alone. But the Hebrews reading this would instantly recognize that that temple curtain or veil that was mentioned in this verse, it would have symbolized that divide that kept ordinary people separated from the holy place and therefore the presence of God. We sang about this morning, that great chasm. Christ came and tore down that divide, powerfully removed this divide once and for all. The other key concept here is that of a high priest. Again, the Hebrews that were accustomed, um, would have been accustomed to a high priest mediating on their behalf. And because of that, it's likely through the establishment of a new covenant, they would also be expecting some sort of mediator. Hebrews 4.14, and again here in Hebrews 10.21, speaks to how Jesus fulfills this role. Now, without getting too far into the theological weeds of priesthood, Hebrews chapter 7 is completely dedicated to explaining why Christ is the ultimate great high priest coming from the order of Melchizedek. So what we see now is instead of a human and a high priest acting on behalf to enter into the presence of God, Jesus has now perfectly fulfilled that role and through that, he opens up the opportunity for all to approach and be in a relation with God. So not only does Jesus provide a mean for atoning for sins, but he also acts as our mediator to allow us to approach God. This right here is the structure and the substance of the gospel. That Christ came, he lived a perfect and a blameless life, he shed his blood through his death on a cross that atoned for the sins of the world, and it also tore the divide between human and divine. It is also here where we begin to find our hope that is rooted in Christ. If we go back to my initial question of, you know, where do we find hope, or, or what is our hope rooted in, you know, it, it's pretty easy to answer something like, oh, our hope is in Christ. It's like asking my four-year-old son, like, what did you learn about in Sunday school this morning? Oh, we learned about God, or we learned about Jesus. Oh, well, he's not wrong, especially here at Redemption's Hill, like, we're teaching our kids about God and, and, and what God did and who Jesus is. Um, but there's a lot more to that answer. What does it actually look like to say that our hope rests in Christ because of what he accomplished through the cross? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us a few exhortations of what having hope leads to and how you and I should actually respond in light of that. So we're going to look at two of those real quickly here. Um, so the first one we see that we are called to draw near to God because of this hope and because of the work of Christ on the cross. Now, this seems pretty obvious, 
Um, now that that divide has been removed, those who profess faith in Christ, it would be obvious that we want to approach God, that we would want to be in a relation with God and be in a relation with our Savior. Perhaps more importantly, however, the ability for us to be restored fully as a child of God is ultimately dependent upon us drawing near to him. In essence, verse 22 gives us four different prerequisites for how we enter into the presence of God and and how we should draw near to him. Those being sincerity, security, salvation, and sanctification. So drawing near with the true heart, this implies that we are to approach God not only with pure and genuine intentions, but a genuine commitment to Christ. So the priests that would have been administering these sacrifices on behalf of the people, they placed a great deal of emphasis on ceremonial cleanliness. In a similar manner, we too should make our own efforts to approach God by separating ourselves from the sinful behaviors and attitude as part of approaching God and being in fellowship with him. The promises of, or as we draw near in full assurance of faith, uh, this speaks to, again, that confidence that we have in the promises of God. It also kind of relates back to verse 19, how we can see that we can boldly approach God knowing that uh, the promises he has provided. The promises of God have been fulfilled and they will be fulfilled. There is no reason for us not to confidently rest in what God has promised. And then finally here, draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, we see some really strong metaphors linking back to that Levitical law. The imagery here would resonate with Hebrews at this time where the blood that was sacrificed um, and sprinkled by the priest, it was meant as a sign for the propitiation for sins. And here where the washing of the body was required for cleanliness. Both of these images and metaphors point to an inward and a spiritual transformation. First and foremost of salvation by the covering of sins with blood. And second, of sanctification by the Holy Spirit purifying a person's life by the means of God's word. The hope that we have here is that when our hearts condemn us, we get to remember that Jesus has cleansed us. There is now therefore no condemnation and we get to enter into the presence of God as his sons and his daughters. The second exhortation we are given is that we are called to hold fast without wavering. The two main implications from this are perseverance of our faith, and that as Christians, it's likely that we should expect some persecution along the way. Expounding upon this a little bit more, perseverance of our faith is not something done primarily as a, to maintain our salvation, but rather it's an evidence of our salvation. And I realize that may seem like a minor distinction, but I think it's pretty important and pretty key. 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9 says, The Lord will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Simply put, if we have professed our faith in Christ, God will be faithful to maintain our salvation. But that doesn't mean we can sit back and enjoy the ride. Persevering in our faith is going to be hard work. Hence, holding fast demonstrates that evidence of our salvation. Moreover, the phrase without wavering here um, in verse 22 implies that there's going to be hardship along the way. Specifically related to the context of the Hebrews here in chapter 10, it was likely intended to urge and call them out of this Levitical law and practice of the old covenant. Christ came and established a new covenant so they wouldn't have to rely on the old system. 
However, here we also see that this Greek term without wavering is also used for enduring torture. As Christians, temptations and persecution are going to come. But as we are shown at the end of verse 23, God is faithful, and with that confidence, we are able to persevere. What this means is that our hope isn't that we are free from trial or that it's going to be an easy ride, but rather Jesus has come and will never leave us. So during Advent, our main goal is to prepare our hearts in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Simply put, Hebrews 10, 19-23 tells us that we can begin to do so by drawing near to God and holding fast to his promises. In a season where we may be tempted to waver and getting caught up with consumerism or traditions, we can stand firm in the truth and promises of the cross. What I don't want you to hear this morning is that we should avoid these festivities or traditions of Christmas. That would err on the side of legalism, and quite frankly, we would miss a beautiful and a wonderful opportunity to celebrate the birth and the life of our Savior. Instead, the boldness and confidence that is spoken of in verse 19, it's related to our freedom because of our new relationship with God. We can freely celebrate the birth and life of Christ through the many traditions or family gatherings and meals, fellowship with friends, and other holiday um, activities this season. But in doing so, Christ should remain central. We should be drawing nearer and nearer to the one who has afforded us this freedom. God has removed that divide between human and divine and urges all to draw near to him. All, there's kind of two parts to that. Those who profess faith in Christ, we can confidently approach God as we hold fast to our faith. And for those of you that have not yet professed faith in Christ, you too can confidently approach God for your salvation. The work of the cross covers the sins of the world and it provides a means to a relationship with God. So as we begin to transition into our time of worship through song, we we have the opportunity to respond in in light of today's passage. Uh, I want us to take a moment and pause as we think about what drawing near to God and holding fast is going to look like for us um, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. Again, stealing Harrison's phrase from last week, I'm going to frame it as a question here. Are our hearts being lulled to sleep with fill in the blank for you, whatever you might struggle with this year? Or are we actually using this season to redirect our hearts in anticipation and preparation of the return of Christ? I know for me personally, this can be very challenging. It's super easy to get consumed with the norms and traditions of Christmas. Um, for example, as a young f- family, Tiffany and I, we are we're trying to find different traditions that we can put in place for our family. Um, this year we started reading through the Jesus Storybook Bible through the Old Testament, a story a day as we lead up to Christmas um, to point our kids to the coming of Christ. Um, oftentimes for me personally, it's, it's really easy to elevate an activity for the sake of tradition. Last night we're reading through the story and Sawyer's kind of paying attention, um, doing a pretty good job last night. Ainsley, she was all over the board. She's crawling all over us and ended up ripping a page out of the Bible. And it's like in those moments, you know, my pride and, and the, the desire for me to withhold that tradition gets surpassed in, you know, the activity in and of itself. This time of year, you know, a lot of us are traveling to visit family. That can be stressful. That can be um, filled with anxiety. We're trying to find ways to, to love our coworkers or our neighbors. And this is on top of the normal busyness and craziness of life. We can have good intentions and genuine motives, but it's still really easy to get lost in our worldly desires. 
My prayer is that we as a church won't get lost in the noise and bustle of this season, but rather we can rest in the truth found in Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Oftentimes the forgiveness of sin through Christ dying on the cross becomes the central tenet of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And hear me out here. Absolutely, the blood of Christ shed on the cross is the ultimate atonement for sin, once and for all. We see that very clearly here in the text of Hebrews. We see it very clearly throughout the entire New Testament. And we even see that the Old Covenant points to this. But what Christ accomplished on the cross doesn't stop there. Before Christ came, lived, and died in our place, we were unable to enter the holy places and be in the presence of God. Ordinary people like you and I, we relied on a high priest to mediate on our behalf. However, through his death on a cross, Christ destroyed the divide between human and divine. He created a new covenant and not only covered all sin, but also provides a means for us to approach God, for us to be in a relation with God, and for us to be in communion with God. So regardless of where you stand today, you can confidently approach God because of what Christ did on the cross. Whether you are a believer or a non-believer, whether you're in a period or a phase of life where you are joyful, um, you have thanksgiving and you're happy, or maybe you're going through something, you're sad, you're stressed, you're anxious, you may be struggling with a loss or addiction, whatever phase of life you are in, know that Christ has provided a means for us to approach and be in communion with him. We can confidently go to him to be reassured. We can confidently go to him to be comforted. We can confidently go to him in worship and thanksgiving. And we can confidently go to him in humility, knowing that we have a loving father who gave his only son as a means of our salvation. So let's circle back to the question I asked us to ponder. If our hope truly rests in our Savior, Jesus Christ, what does the fulfillment of that hope look like? One way to think about this is, how do we feel after that desire or expectation has come and gone? Was our hope fulfilled? Well, for the Hebrews, their hope was that one day a Savior might come and establish a new covenant that would replace these Levitical rituals. Look, if you have ever participated in harvesting or butchering an animal, you know it's an ugly and a messy process. I'm sure the Hebrews, and especially the priests who were administering these sacrifices, did not enjoy, they did not look forward to, and I would assume they didn't even have hope in that process. The sacrificial system of the Levitical law was designed to demonstrate just how serious and how ugly sin truly is. The hope for the Hebrews was that one day a Savior would come and once and for all cover the cost of sin and that they would no longer have to rely on these yearly sacrifices and a priest mediating on their behalf. So to them, Hebrews 10, 19 to 21, painted this beautiful picture of the hope that they had in anticipating the coming of Christ and how that was actually fulfilled. Christ came, Christ established this new covenant, and that is the fulfillment of their hope of the old covenant was good. Again, Christ came, Christ died, And Christ made a way to ultimately atone for sin and provide a means for everyone to be in a relation with him. And for you and I today, that is where our hope is also found. Our hope is rooted in what Christ accomplished on the cross. But more importantly, the fulfillment of our hope in the new covenant is even better than what was promised in the old covenant. The new covenant promises that Christ will one day return for those who he has called into the fellowship of his son. The manifestation of the Old Covenant gave us Christ. The manifestation of the New Covenant affords those who are in fellowship with Christ to spend eternity worshiping her Savior. 
That is where the hope of a Christian is found and what the ultimate fulfillment of our hope would look like. So as we draw to a close today, we actually get to put into practice having boldness of approaching God um, through one of the sacraments that we celebrate here at uh, Redemption's Hill Communion. Uh, so there are communion cups in the entryway if you didn't grab one on the way in and, and band, you guys can go ahead and come back up. So at this point in our service, we read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26 nearly every week. And oddly enough, it, it really is the perfect way to sum up uh, this message this morning. Um, more importantly, it's also the perfect way to begin to put into practice drawing near to God, um, approaching God with boldness to be in relationship and to be in communion with him. Uh, I really like how a couple weeks ago Clayton had everyone kind of read the passage together, and I think today as we begin to prepare our hearts um, to draw near to God and to be in relation with him, I would ask you to just pause and read the passage along with me um, to set our hearts right as we get ready to partake in communion. Um, so I think 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26 should be up there. Um, if you would just read along with me. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we sing these last few songs, feel free to celebrate in the hope that is promised in the new covenant. Here at Redemption's Hill, all that we ask for you to partake is that first and foremost, you are in right relationship with Christ, and that secondly, you are in right relationship with others. If that is not you today, I simply ask that as we worship in song, you just take time to pray to God and ask him to soften your heart to the truth that was proclaimed and the truth that he gives. And just ask him to soften your heart to the promises that he has provided. Um, if you need to get right with another brother or sister, I encourage you to do so. And for those of you that are in right relation with Christ and others, I invite you to partake with thanksgiving of the true hope that is offered through the blood and body of Christ.